you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Music director Michael McGee is sick, and uh, he called me this morning and said, there's no way I can make it, and uh, so we appreciate Tom and and others uh, playing uh, the music to accompany our singing today. Um, Before I read this, uh, next Sunday, not only do we have that uh, brunch, but it's uh, it's when we do the Christmas music. It's a special uh, service. We have a lot of guest musicians and others. And, and every year, I kind of hear the same thing. If I'd known it was going to be this good, I would have invited somebody to come with me. So think about that in advance. Often at, at, at Christmas time, people will, that typically never attend a church, they will, they will go if you invite them and um, offer to pick them up or to meet them here and, and sit together. So I hope that you don't tell me after the service next week, oh, I, I wish I'd... <laughs> Which I thought to invite somebody to come with me. Um, I'm going to refer to a book that's that's very good. It's a brief, it's a short little booklet. It's by John Piper, The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, Daily Readings for Advent. Um, but if you don't have this, you could, uh, I think I ordered it on Amazon, had it in two days, and it, I'm going to use, I'm going to make, have a quotation from it during this, uh, during this sermon. When we come to John chapter 1, uh, I'll, I'll read down through verse 13. Hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we ask now that you might empower us by your spirit to focus on your word, that your You'd help us in distractions, those of us that are are perhaps grieving or concerned about some issue in our lives, Um, or waiting on a report about that. We pray that you might now allow us to uh, uh, be good ground by the power of your Spirit where seed would land and bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I heard the story of a group of language experts who decided to teach a chimpanzee to write. And they uh, knew that this would be the first time in history this had ever been done, so according to the story, they caught a chimpanzee in the wilds of Africa, and they, they brought it back to America, and they brought it to a laboratory, and they uh, brought it up in a cage, put it in a cage, and it, it lived there. And 
from its earliest days, they began to teach it the English alphabet. And uh, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they worked to teach this animal to write. They went through rules of spelling, grammar, and the day finally came when they thought the chimpanzee was proficient enough to finally be able to communicate a message. So they had the journalists there, they had all sorts of reporters and television, and they handed the chimp a pencil and a pad of paper, and they said, please write something you want us to know. And to their utter amazement, he did just that. And the message he wrote was clear and simple, three words, let me out. So with a few words, the chimp expressed himself and his desire. When I was in high school, my youth director suggested that he and I memorize a chapter from the Bible. I'd, I'd hardly ever memorized verses from the Bible, but this was a goal that maybe it was a challenge, so we decided to memorize a chapter, and this was the chapter, John chapter 1. And uh, worked for a few weeks, and we would meet on Wednesday nights, and we would go over what we had memorized and say it back and forth. And so through the years, I would just go over and over and over and meditate on John chapter 1. And what's, there's a lot that's very profound about this chapter. It begins very abstract, and that's the part we'll look at today, verses 1 to 5. And then it becomes very concrete. It moves from talking about Jesus in his pre-incarnate state before he becomes a man to when he becomes a man and walks among us. Let's just look this morning for a few minutes at the first five verses that I mentioned. John, John intentionally uh, goes very back to the, and uses the opening verses from the Bible, basically. In the beginning was the Word. He's going back from Genesis chapter 1. And because he wants the reader, he wants us to understand that Jesus, uh, to understand who Jesus is, you must have, you have to go back. You have to go back, not just to the manger at Bethlehem, not just to Joseph and Mary, no further back. Uh, not even just back to King David or Moses or Abraham or to Adam and Eve, but not even just to Genesis 1, back further, even before the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, the word already existed. That is what he was saying. In the beginning, whereas Genesis says God created the heavens and the earth, here in the beginning was the word. He was already there, the son of God. So he was not a created being. Uh, when you and I talk about Jesus, we have to go back before his earthly life. And that is beyond even the beginning of creation. So there never was a time, John is telling us, when the Word was not. Everything you see um, and have and touch had a point of beginning. It had a starting point. There was a time when this pew on which you sit did not exist. There was a time when Macon did not exist, when the United States did not exist. There was a time when this building or the materials used uh, to build this building did not exist. There was a time when you did not exist. You were conceived and, and came to exist at a point in time. But Jesus, um, before he was ever conceived in the womb of Mary, he existed. He existed. 
Theologians refer to this as his pre-incarnate state. In John chapter 6, Jesus said that I come down from heaven. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And so the pre-incarnate Son of God in John 1 assumes a human nature. He took upon himself human flesh and blood. The infinite entered into finite relations. The supernatural entered the historical. And John uses the word word. In the beginning was the word. The Greek term, as you know, is, is logos. Many people, they, they know that, that part. I had a debate coach in college at the University of Alabama, and he, I was one of two Christians in the, in, in, that, that were known in, in the students. And we got into, among the students in, in the classes in the speech department, and one day in front of the whole class, he, he, he turned and he said, in the beginning was... And he looked at me and he said, he wanted me to finish it. He wanted me to say the word, logos. That was what his point. But I said, in the beginning was God. And he yells out this expletive because I messed up his illustration, you know, in front of the class. But in the beginning was the logos. That's what he was trying to get to. He wanted to get to that word. And so this term, logos, was used by the Jews to describe the agent of creation, the source of God's message to his people. But the Greeks, they used the term in a different way. Logos could refer to a person's thoughts. It could refer to their speech. But also in, in their philosophical sense, they said logos conveyed the, the rational principle that governed the universe, and the, even the creative energy that created and generated the universe. But in both cultures, whether it was Jewish, the Hebrews, or whether it was the Greeks, the term logos conveyed the idea of beginnings. You say, what are we listening to? Is this a sermonship? I mean, is this real life? Yes, this is what John wants us to know if we're to understand who Jesus is. And so in both cultures, it, it conveyed the idea of beginnings. The world began through the logos, through the word, through Jesus. That is what John is saying through the Son of God. I use the term Jesus to speak about the incarnate Son of God, but I'm using it here just so you'll know I'm speaking of the Son of God. Now, John Piper, in this little book, in the, the Dawning of Indestructible Joy, he says this about, about what John is saying. He says, Calling Jesus the Word is John's way of emphasizing that the very existence of the Son of God is for the sake of communication. He could have said in the beginning was the feeling in the beginning was the thought, but the fact that he says in the beginning was the word. First and foremost, Piper says, he exists and has always existed from all eternity for the sake of communication with the Father. Secondarily, but infinitely important for us, the Son of God became divine communication to us. And then in the last sentence, he says, one might say in summary, calling Jesus the word implies that he is God expressing himself to us. What does John say about him? He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God. And that doesn't communicate, that sounds like, well, we can, I am with you by the fact that we are here today, but it's much more intimate than that. Literally, it could be translated, the word was face-to-face -face with God. 
Sinclair Ferguson notes how in different cultures there's different etiquette when it comes to eye contact and social space and whether it's proper to touch someone or to shake their hand and, and, or to hug someone. And you know that, and therefore any missionary, when they're brief before they go into a country, part of the training is, is social etiquette and what's proper or what's not. They may do something that's a friendly gesture in the U.S., and it's very offensive in another culture. But it's pretty much recognized in our culture that if, you, if a man and a woman lock eyes with each other, there's an, there's a, that's an expression of a desire for intimacy, and there's even a sensual aspect to it. So when you watch movies, you know, and there's a crowd of people, and two people lock eyes, you know right then, oh, there's a relationship getting ready to happen, uh, or it's already happened. And so we understand this. Now, the Bible tells us that whenever someone, um, that no one could see God face to face, and even like with Elijah, when God passed by, he, he shielded him in a sense from, from seeing him and, and, and others and people that thought they had come into the presence of God thought they were going to die. And so the idea that a human could see God face to face in this life is unthinkable. But that is exactly how it's describing how the Logos was with God and it's face to face. It's almost like eye to eye. That's the closeness. So John's telling us that, that the, the Son existed in the closest possible relationship with the Father. He's a separate person from the Godhead. Now that brings up the doctrine of the Trinity. Y'all still with me? Okay, I didn't intend it, but it's nice that it's cold so you can't Z out right now when I'm on this. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Uh, we use that term to refer to the fact that God is one God who exists in three persons. One being, three persons. One God, three persons. That's important. It's not three gods. It's not three forms of God. It's not one God who morphs himself. Well, I'm going to morph in, as to the Son, and now I'll morph into the Spirit, and now I'll morph into the, to the Father. It says here that Jesus is fully God. He's fully divine. The Word was God. Do you know what that means? Everything that can be said about God can be said about the Son as well. Is the Father sovereign? Rule over all? So is the Son. Is the Father, does he know all? So does the Son. Is he omnipresent? So is the Son. Well, where did a man like John get such ideas? Uh, where did he get such an opinion about Jesus? Well, he got it from Jesus himself. What he had heard Jesus say. The I am sayings of Jesus, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These were all statements that claimed divinity. He claimed to be divine. And they were blasphemous in Jesus' day, and that's part of what got him in so much trouble with the religious leaders. The climax of such was in John chapter 8, where the religious leaders have been challenging everything that Jesus has been saying. And he had just made the statement that, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Well, Abraham had lived 2,000 years before Jesus was saying this. And, of course, they all knew that. 
And John records that they said, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus replied. He replied using his most solemn form of introducing a saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John records that this so infuriated them that they wanted to kill him on the spot. What did they, what was so provocative about this? Why did they get so upset? Well, if you've studied John 8, you know that when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was using the divine name that God gave himself to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses had asked, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's in Exodus 3. So when Jesus said that to the leaders there, before Abraham was, I am, he was taking upon himself the name of God. He was saying, I am God. And that's why they wanted to kill him, because they, they said he was committing blasphemy. So John is the one who heard these claims to divinity from Jesus. Verse 3 tells us Jesus was the agent in the making of the world. It says that the Father created through the Word. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything owes existence to the Word. At his birth, Joseph and Mary had been created through him. His disciples were created through him. At his arrest, the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and the Roman officials had been created through him. The crowds who cried out for his crucifixion had been created through him. The Roman guards who crucified him, they had been created through him. Today, you and I and celebrities and media leaders and sports figures and presidents and dictators all were created through him and by him. Do you know what this means? It means that you have been created through him, and do you know what it means? It means you depend on him for your very existence, whether you realize it or not. Verses 4 and 5 says Jesus is the life and the light of men. Life, the word life is a key term in John's gospel. He uses it between 30 and 40 times, and not just physical life, but abundant life, eternal life. That life was the light of men. And if you read the Bible, light's a common, a common symbol of God's presence and of his favor. In the Old Testament, it's seen very clearly in the Exodus when the Jews came out of, of Egypt from slavery. They experienced that the Lord went before them in, in a pillar of cloud that would guide them. And it said, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So there was illumination. That was the function of that. But there was also guidance. The other significance of saying that God is light in Scripture is speaking of the fact that he's perfect and he's morally righteous and he's flawless. And so when Timothy says, or Paul says in 1 Timothy, God lives in unapproachable light, it's saying that he is pure and holy and darkness even even today we use darkness it refers to judgment and evil and we the bible says we are born in spiritual darkness we do not naturally know god here around here we call that the bad news good news the fact that you know god created our ancient four parents adam and eve and they had perfect 
relationship with God. They literally walked and talked with him, and there was no fear. There was no shame even between them. It said they were naked and unafraid, and yet they disobeyed God. They, they committed a crime against God. They violated the one prohibition he gave them, and he had told them the day you, if you do that, you will surely die. Well, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually. And at the same time, he, he promised that, that he would send a redeemer. There in the opening chapters of Genesis, he, re, he refers to this one who will come later. And that we have these prophecies over, over the centuries about this one who would come, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that that, that uh, the virgin would bear a child. And there, there's some 700 prophecies uh, about the Messiah. And Jesus is, is that one. And he came and he lived a perfect life. And then he died at, on the cross. He, he allowed himself to be crucified. And he defeated our enemies of sin and death. And three days after his death, he rose from the grave. And he appeared over a period of 40 days to probably about 2,000 people at various instances and the last command he gave his disciples was they were to go into all the world and make disciples they were to tell people what God had done and now we receive him through faith and and repentance and we're at that point as we read earlier and we'll look at again in a moment we are adopted into his family as his sons or daughters that that's the bad news and, and the good news that's the light that shines into the darkness and it's the very nature of light to penetrate now think, even it, what it would take to make this room totally dark. I mean really dark. Now I grew up in northeast Alabama and there were a lot of caves and limestone cliffs behind my house. So I grew up as a child playing in caves. <laughs> so, that's really something to brag about, isn't it? You know, I thought you, I crawled out from under a rock, yeah. But you did not have to go far down in some of those caves and um, you couldn't see your hand right here. I mean, the com complete darkness. A lot of people never experience complete darkness. If you go outside at night, I mean, there's still light pollution in so much of the U.S. There's just light often uh, coming uh, from uh, all around us. Yeah, so what would it take to make this room right now completely dark? I mean, we could turn off the electricity, but then we would have to go to great lengths uh, to get uh, covered that, that don't allow light to filter through. To make it completely dark, you have to go to a lot of effort. That is the nature of light. It just takes a sliver, and that light would come in, and it would light up the room. Just a tiny bit, just that much, just a few inches of light coming in, we could still be able to see. Well, that's the nature of light. It pierces darkness, and it penetrates everywhere. And God says in Ephesians, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And so the light is shining in the darkness. How did it shine in the Old Testament? It, it would shine through the prophecies and the, the poetry and the sacrifices and feasts that were pointing ahead to the Redeemer who would come. Now it shines. In verse 5, it's the present tense. The light is shining. It shines in the darkness. Today it shines through his word. As the gospel is preached, as the gospel goes forth, the light is shining. But it also shines through, through natural revelation, through conscience and creation. That we look out and we see the stars and we think, How, this, this couldn't have happened by accident. And, 
you know, we, it doesn't tell us a whole lot, but it's enough to say there must be a creator behind this creation. Has anybody been watching the National Geographic series on Mars? Anybody? Richard, you and I. Okay, we'll talk about it afterwards, too. So, like that. Well, it's on Monday nights, and it's, a, it's kind of a creative thing, but uh, with present, and if we, if we can get to Mars, and it's got, uh, who's the Tesla guy? Yeah, Musk, Elon Musk. Okay, it's got him on there. And y'all know who I'm talking about? Millennials do. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Other people, talk to your kid afterward, and he'll tell you who Elon Musk is. Anyway, just if even half of that program is true, what it would take to not only get to Mars, but if their life has ever been on Mars, but the incredible effort and fine-tuning to sustain life on Mars. It would all be artificial because of the radiation from the sun, because of the, the, the dirt not having the right chemicals to, to grow anything, to uh, just all sorts of issues. And you look at that, and it bears testimony to what Christian apologists called the cosmic welcome mat of the earth. That when you look at how fine-tuned life is, Christopher Hitchens, before he died, uh, the, the, a very aggressive atheist said, said this was the issue that caused him the biggest problem as an atheist. And that is that how fine-tuned earth is for human life. You, you just change the, the composition of our atmosphere, just a slight proportion in any direction, and life could not be sustained. You move our world a little closer or a little further away from the sun, and it would be the same. And all of the the, uh, the factors that go into the fact that we can live, that we can live on this planet. Even Stephen Hawking, this may surprise you because often his quotations are selected carefully. He said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Now that from an unbeliever. You know, when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, that's part of the light shining through natural revelation. So the darkness, it says, has not overcome it. And, well, I would back up and say this. The light is shining. Have you seen it? If you're not in Christ, you're in darkness. You can have a Ph.D. and be in darkness. You can have a Master of Divinity, that's the preacher degree, and be in darkness. Uh, you can be an honor student and be in darkness. You may seem very brilliant compared to people around you. You can be a Sunday school teacher. You can be a missionary and be in darkness if you don't know Christ. But the darkness has overcome it. There's a playwright who's named David Modge. And uh, on November 22, 1963, he was sitting in a theater in New York City watching the performance of a play that he had written. And there was a scene in the play which called for one of the actors to walk over to a radio and to turn the radio on for just a few moments. Now, the radio was live, and he was to turn it on and, and scan the stations and then allow it to play what was there. So it was not a pre-recorded thing. They didn't set that part up. And whatever the station was broadcasting, that was going to be what the audience heard. So at that particular time, he walks over, as the play called for, he turned on the radio, he scanned through the stations, and he finally settled on one that was coming in clearly. 
and the audience heard the words of an anxious newsman. Today in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. And the actor quickly turned the radio off, but it was too late. What had happened? Well, the real world had broken into that theater. Real historical event, a real one had happened, and life would never, things would never be the same. The disciples and those around the resurrection knew that something had happened that altered history, it altered their lives. They knew they would never be the same. So how does John, where is he leading to in this? Though we've just looked at the first five verses. I wanted to read through verse 13 to focus on verse 12 in closing. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, We celebrate this season often with the giving of gifts. And of course, God tells us eternal life is a free gift. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. Have you received it? It's as simple as saying, Lord, I put my trust in you. Please make me the person you want me to be. I repent of my sins. I accept your gift of forgiveness. I accept the gift of eternal life. In your name I pray, amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the incarnation. It's, it's, uh, it's deep water for us to even ponder uh, the, your nature. And that we are your, you are the potter and we are the clay and you've made us. And we understand little But thank you for the light that you've given us through your word. Uh, We thank you that all things were made through Christ uh, and that that we ourselves were, that you give us purpose. And we pray that we would see you not as a distant uh, uh, maker and even judge, but as one that we can have a relationship with through your son where we can call you Father. And we pray in his name. Amen. This last hymn uh, speaks of some of this from John 1. Let's stand and sing together, What Child Is This?